This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast side episode. 106b Last Monuments. In this bonus content, I explore three of Amunhotep III's building projects, which are fascinating but don't quite fit into the main narrative. Having just spent some time in Luxor, specifically focusing on this pharaoh's legacy, I thought I would filter some of my experience into this extra content. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Stephen Schimpf in gratitude for his generous support. Stephen, Anubis pours blessings over you and the necropolis of your family. Surely he will see you guided safely to the West. Also, thanks to Andrew, Catherine and Steph for becoming patrons of the podcast. Folks, your support means the world. Anubis and his counterpart, Wep Wawet, smile upon your works. Your future is safe. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me and on with the show. The king appointed me to be high steward. My staff was upon the heads of the common folk. The king also appointed me to direct the works in his mansion of millions of years, on the floodplain west of the temple for Ptah's car spirit, upon the region of Ankh-Tawi. From the autobiography of Amunhotep Hui, steward of the pharaoh and overseer of works in Memphis. The year was 1365 BCE, approximately. It was regnal year 35 under the majesty of Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep III. Pharaoh was on top of the world, his power extended to all foreign lands, and great kings, rulers of mighty peoples, begged Amunhotep for his friendship. To pay for Egyptian loyalty, they sent their own daughters as gifts. Pharaoh's palace and harem was not just a place of pleasure, but a marker of his international might. The king of Egypt, approximately 47 years old, now lived full-time at the city of Waset, or Thebes. He lived in the palace called Neb Ma'at Re Aten Chechen, which we know better as Malkata. Here, on the west bank of the city, Amunhotep made his leisure amid gardens, lakes, apartments, and courts. He was the idle pharaoh, reveling in his majesty. At Waset and throughout Egypt, Amunhotep was a legend. Pharaoh's command was written up and down the Nile Valley. His name went out in proclamations, temple rituals, and administrative projects. More importantly, Amunhotep's fame steadily grew in conjunction with the monuments that continued to rise throughout the lands. We've seen many of the king's great works, the Colossi of Memnon, the Mortuary Temple of the West Bank, the renovation and expansion of Karnak, temples in Middle Egypt dedicated to Jehuti or Thoth, and temples in Nubia dedicated to the pharaoh himself, 
Finally, there were the thousand and one small projects, many of which are lost, some of which survive. Traces of these monuments give us clues to the expanse of Amunhotep's monumental world. To begin with, I want to look at a city that is vitally important, but often overlooked. The city of Memphis in the north of Egypt was the home of many buildings constructed under Amunhotep. One of these, a mansion of millions of years, has to date eluded archaeologists. But texts, specifically the biography of officials, give us a hint at what was there. Let's see what we can find. Memphis was still the premier city of the north, and perhaps the largest town in Egypt. From its ancient white walls to its hallowed temples and its vast necropolis at Saqqara, Memphis remained the shining beacon of royal and elite culture. It was the most important community, at least in terms of economic and administrative importance, in the whole country. Amunhotep III did not neglect it. References from ancient officials like Amunhotep Hui, whose autobiography opened this chapter, tell us that the pharaoh commissioned a whole new temple for the city. This temple was located somewhere west of the main centre, and it was devoted to the king. It might have been a sort of mortuary temple. Amunhotep Hui, overseer of works in Memphis, speaks of the king's mansion of millions of years. This is conventionally a name applied to temples devoted to the cult of a deceased king. In other words, mortuary temples for worshipping the pharaoh in the afterlife. With that in mind, it is possible that this temple at Memphis was a second mortuary temple, complementing the one already built at Thebes. The practice isn't unique. Previously, King Amosa I had built a pyramid to be used as a memorial rather than a tomb. Years later, kings like Seti I and Ramesses II would build their own extra temples at the same place to memorialize their reigns. It's possible that Amunhotep III did this at Memphis. The city of Memphis, once called Mennefer, was dominated by a massive temple to Ptah. Ptah, as we know, was the patron god of the city, a creator deity, lord of craftsmen, and one who had supreme power of thought. Ptah was among Egypt's oldest and most privileged deities. Memphis was his domain, and by 1365, the city actually seems to have been known by the name of Hutka-Ptah. Hutka-Ptah, the Temple of Ptah's Ka, or spirit, was the name of the primary sanctuary, and it later extended to the city itself. Why this happened is unclear. Perhaps the name of Mennefer had diminished in importance as the temple itself grew physically and economically. Whatever the cause, by 1365, Ptah's temple was the preeminent monument of Memphis, and it helped to define this community. As we'll see later, Hutka Ptah also had a profound impact on Egypt itself. Amunhotep III commissioned a large temple west of the main Ptah sanctuary. The new monument was called his Mansion of Millions of Years, as Amunhotep Hoi tells us, but it also had a more specific name. It was called the Temple of Neb Ma'at Re United with Ptah. This is a really interesting name, and it could mean one of three things. The verb uniting, or chenemet in Egyptian, 
might refer to a building that was physically connected with the Patar sanctuary, like an extra building added onto the main structure. Or it could be a symbolic connection, two temples operating under the same priesthood and linked by administrative or economic systems. Finally, it might refer to something more divine. The temple was called Neb Ma'at Re, uniting with Patar. Neb Ma'at Re was, of course, the pharaoh's throne name, but it was also the name he used when promoting himself as a god. Back in episode 105, we saw how the king started to identify himself explicitly with the divine beings, especially after his first Sed festival. It's possible that the name Neb Matre united with Patar refers not to a physical union between buildings, but a spiritual union between images of divine beings. The inner sanctuary of this new temple would have housed a statue of the pharaoh, probably made of gold. Maybe it was this statue that was named Neb Matre united with Patar. In other words, it's possible that the temple was dedicated to Amunhotep in his superhuman divine form as a kind of hybrid god. Let me explain. You've heard of Amun-Ra or Ra-Horakti, versions of gods that unite two or more different beings. Well, Ptah had that as well. He sometimes appeared as Ptah or Ptah Tartenen, and sometimes as Ptah Soka Osiris. These are unions between Ptah the craftsman and other deities of the earth like Tartenen or the underworld, Sokar and Osiris. Ptah was often worshipped as this hybrid deity. We call them syncretized gods. It's possible that Amunhotep III wanted to unite his own divinity with that of the Lord of Craftsmen. Why would he do this? Well, Amunhotep and his theological advisors seem to have been particularly adept at promoting the idea of Pharaoh as a universal being. In Luxor Temple, he appeared as an incarnation of Amun, the Hidden One. In Nubia, we see him as Khonsu, the Moon. In Malkata, he's invoked as the Dazzling Aten. Perhaps at Memphis, the king felt it appropriate to unite with Ptah specifically. So maybe the temple of Nebmatra united with Ptah was a place for locals to worship the king and the god as a hybrid, syncretized being. Maybe. There are many question marks about the temple of Nebmatre united with Ptah. A lot of those questions could be answered with some good archaeology, but the temple has not been located yet. Even the temple of Ptah, Lord of Memphis, is only partially understood. Memphis is probably less than 1% of 1% excavated, so the nature of the temples here is still very mysterious. Until more work is done, a lot more, we have very little to go on. Fortunately, we do get a basic idea of the temple thanks to our man Amunhotep Hui, the overseer of works. Apart from describing his own career and the ways that the king promoted him, Amunhotep Hui also left a description of Pharaoh's great temple. From that, we can get an idea of what Nebmatre united with Ptah might have looked like. Quote, All of the temple's doors were made out of cedar wood from Lebanon, and from the choicest of Gao, worked with true gold from the deserts. It was fine gold, and every costly and valuable stone was there. The lake was dug and planted with trees. End quote. So the temple had a lake, 
pylon gateways and large doors. So far, so Karnak. We can imagine an enclosure wall, a gateway, a processional road leading to another pylon, and then the sacred lake and inner sanctuaries. Pretty similar to Karnak, Luxor, and dozens of others along the Nile Valley. The description of a lake dug and planted with trees is a nice touch, reminding me of the orchards which decorated the temples of Tutmos III and Hatshepsut up at Thebes. Basically, Amunhotep Hoi describes a fairly standard Egyptian temple, gates, roads, courtyards, halls, and sanctuaries, with an artificial lake to give the whole thing its symbolic setting. If you can imagine the main access route of Karnak, but probably on a smaller scale, you might have a basic idea of what the temple of Neb Matre united with Ptah looked like. Amunhotep Hoi also tells us that the temple was constructed of limestone, most likely Tura limestone from the east bank of the Nile near to Memphis. This would have been a perfect material to connect the temple with the larger enclosure walls of Memphis, which used to be called Eneb Hedge, the White Wall. Also, the temple of Ptah itself had plenty of limestone masonry. Pieces of it have been discovered at the city. So the temple of Neb Matre united with Ptah was probably a visual complement to the older Ptah sanctuary and the city of Memphis itself. A shining beacon, it would have stood somewhere near the necropolis of Saqqara and the city as a marker of the pharaoh's great splendour and his contributions to the town. Apart from his great temple, we also know that Pharaoh made smaller contributions to the local religious landscape. Within the grand enclosure of Ptah, archaeologists have recovered stone blocks from a small shrine. It seems that Amunhotep III commissioned a bark shrine at this temple. This was a building made to house the holy boat, or bark, for the god statue. This bark of Amunhotep was dedicated to Ptah in his form of Ptah Sokar. Ptah Sokar was a combination, hybrid, of two deities, Ptah and Sokar. Sokar was the falcon-headed form of Ra who lived in the underworld and participated in the resurrection of Osiris. Sokar, known as the Lord of the Mysterious Regions of the Duat and He Who Is Upon His Sand, was an incredibly ancient deity. But whereas Ptah ruled over Earth and helped fashion the cosmos, Sokar lived in the West, and his nightly escapades became part of the mythology of Osiris, the underworld, and the paths trod by the dead. Worship of Ptah Sokar was important in local funerary customs. Building a bark shrine for this god was a way for the pharaoh to express his piety and his patronage of local people. If Ptah Sokar was satisfied, those living in Memphis had a better chance of safely reaching the underworld and participating in the resurrection. And since Amunhotep was building a mortuary temple nearby, it was always a good idea to favour Ptah Sokar and bring his blessings down upon the king. So we know that Amunhotep III commissioned at least two structures in Memphis the large temple Neb Matre united with Ptah, and a smaller bark shrine for Ptah Sokar. Along with everything else in his reign, these were probably well-built, exquisitely decorated, and furnished with an abundance of offerings and goods. 
The temple in particular, just to the west of the city, might have had its own vineyards attached, depending on how you translate the word bar or cultivated land. Beyond that, not much else is available. The city of Memphis and its temples are buried under modern township, and excavation at the open areas has been sporadic at best. Hopefully, that will change soon. So that's Amunhotep in Memphis. Now, it's time for us to return to Thebes to see some of the splendid structures which were going up in the last years of Amunhotep's reign. But first, a quick break. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Going south, we travel upriver, back to the city of Waset or Thebes, modern-day Luxor. There were two noteworthy monuments going up here in the later days of Amunhotep. On the one hand, the mighty Luxor temple was reaching completion. On the other, the palace of Malkata continued to expand with new structures and features. We'll look at Malkata first, just for a minute, and then focus on the much grander temple. By the time the second Sed festival rolled around in 1366 BCE, Amunhotep and T seem to have been living pretty much full-time at Malkata. The sprawling estate called Neb Ma'at Rei Aten Chehen, or Neb Ma'at Rei is the Dazzling Sun Disk, had grown substantially since its first phase. Now, it had its own temple, a series of shrines dedicated to Amun, and it featured both a massive artificial harbour, the Birket Habu, and an elaborate series of apartments, courts, administrative offices, and shared living spaces. Malkata had become a magnificent area, a palace city away from the bustle of Thebes. Just to the north of the main palace, near to the Amun temple, Amunhotep soon ordered a second set of buildings to go up. This northern structure would be another suite of apartments, courts, public spaces, and living quarters. In effect, it was a second palace. We call this one the North Palace. We're not exactly original with our names, are we? Hmm. The North Palace of Malkata is like a compact, more focused version of the main palace. It has all the amenities, storage facilities, a throne room, a bathing hall, and rooms which seem to be apartments. It's smaller and less grandiose, but overall more efficiently designed than the main palace. So it is clearly a space where lessons learned on the first one were applied and the space used more effectively. The only question is, 
Who is it built for? The North Palace is clearly a residential space. It has domestic facilities like the bathing hall and apartments, and it has a throne room for royal audiences. But the structure is divided into two areas. The apartments are located at either end of the complex, on the west and east. The western apartments seem larger, perhaps designed for the king and queen to live in. The eastern ones, meanwhile, might belong to the more prominent of the royal children, Sit Amun, Amunhotep IV, and the younger daughters. But there's no definitive evidence for who lived here. This just seems like the most likely explanation based on the arrangement of the space. The North Palace is not a purely residential area, though. It also has public and ceremonial spaces. For one thing, there is a large throne room, where whoever lived here, like Amunhotep, could receive guests and conduct business. There is also a large pavilion, or belvedere, on the northwestern corner of the structure. It's possible that this was intended for the king to make appearances during the said festival. A pavilion, with the pharaoh and queen enthroned, was a good space to show off and dispense treasures to favoured officials. So the whole complex does seem to be tied together, along with the Temple of Amun nearby. Perhaps this is a palace designed for use during the said festival. That being said, the North Palace is not 100% explained. There aren't really any definitive textual references or proofs of exactly who lived here. Hopefully, further excavations will yield results. But for now, all we can say is that Amunhotep expanded his palace city by adding a second suite of structures, which included apartments, a throne room, and bathing hall. Clearly, it is some kind of royal residence, but was it the king's, or perhaps Queen T's, or maybe one of the children's? For now, the answer eludes us. The palace could easily have belonged to Sit Amun, who was a great royal wife, or Prince Amunhotep, who was destined to become king next. Or maybe the palace belonged to Queen T. After all, she was a political power to equal her husband. So perhaps, as a gesture of respect, the king expanded Malkata, adding sweets for her. Here, she may be held court on her own initiatives, receiving foreign dignitaries, more on that another time, and orchestrating business for her own wealthy, vast estates. I'm just speculating here, but it's not impossible to imagine that the two sections of Malkata now belonged to the two different members of the royal power couple. Again, that's just an idea. The point is, we don't really know who the North Palace was designed for, and there's multiple avenues of interpretation. It's now time to move on to Luxor Temple, on the east bank of the Nile, just south of Karnak. We visited Luxor Temple briefly a few years back in the context of some birth scenes which depicted Amunhotep's mother, Mut M. Weir, becoming pregnant thanks to the work of Amun. Those scenes are vitally important, especially to understanding the king's overall propaganda, but I'd like to revisit the temple and explore its structures in a bit more detail. Why? Well, it just so happens that I was there this morning, and I have it all fresh in my mind. So, let's wander through the halls. I'm writing the final edit of this episode in the city of Luxor, ancient Waset. The city is cool this winter, a mere 19 degrees Celsius at midday. The breeze off the Nile is fresh, and the people seem to be enjoying relief from the usual heat of southern Egypt. 
As I look out over the Nile, though, I wonder what kind of winter days Amunhotep, T, and their many children enjoyed during the last decade of his power. Around 1365 BCE, Amunhotep was in his mid-forties. Overweight and in less than ideal health, the king still wielded great power, but his earthly form was starting to decay. I wonder if Thebes during winter was a relief for him, easing the aches and pains, or was it too chilly? Did he yearn for more warmth, perhaps? We may never know, but this is what goes through my mind as I edit today's episode. When Amunhotep first came to power, Luxor Temple was a small set of shrines built by different kings. It was disparate, and probably nothing special to look at. That didn't last long. In the three-plus decades of his reign, Amunhotep III totally revamped the complex and raised a whole new suite of buildings. When he was done, Luxor Temple was larger, grander, and included all the features of a modern 18th dynasty sanctuary. It looked something like this. Firstly, the temple had three inner sanctuaries, what we call a tripartite shrine. Inside, there were images of the king worshipping Amun in a variety of forms. We see Amun-Ra, foremost of Ipet-Sut, Amun-Ra, the lord who rules Thebes, Amun, lord of the sky, and Amun-Min, with his arm raised like Orion and his phallus erect and proud. Different forms of the same god, the king of the gods, Amun, the lord of Thebes. Outside these three sanctuaries, there is a small hall of columns, and then a larger hall for storing the god's bark. The bark, that wooden boat on carrying poles, was an essential component of the temple, and they usually had their own dedicated space. Today, Amunhotep's bark shrine has been replaced by one of Ramesses II, and, of all people, Alexander the Great. Originally, I expect, there was a smaller bark shrine, decorated with images of Amunhotep. All around the walls of these inner halls, Amunhotep III and the gods appear in top-quality stone carving. Delicate raised relief, the equal of anything else made in the time, shows the king making offerings to various deities. He stands before their shrines and in front of the holy barks, giving them ointments, perfumes, incense, and all good things. Imagine the king here on a festival day, holding jars of sweet-smelling oil and burning incense for the gods. A rich, heady atmosphere in the heart of the temple. Outside the bark shrine, and off to one side, there is the special room set aside for the birthing scenes. I described these images back in episode 90. At some point, the king, or perhaps his mother, Mut Emwia, commissioned this room to contain depictions of Amunhotep's conception by the gods themselves. Murals show Mut Emwia receiving good news from Thoth that Amun will give her a child. In other scenes, deities like Kunum and Hathor hold Mut Emwia's hand, giving her the breath of life for the pregnancy ahead. We see Kanum, the potter, fashioning Amunhotep upon his wheel. First, Kanum makes Amunhotep's body, and then his car, two parts of his eternal being. Then Hathor offers Ankh, imbuing the young king with life, hopefully everlasting life. With that, the boy is ready to emerge, and the time is right. We then see gods leading Mut Emwia to the birthing chamber, 
where, after a presumably effortless labour, she will give birth to the most magnificent, the most perfect, the most splendid child in the world. Young Amunhotep emerges, articulate and capable, and Egypt has its great king. It's all nonsense, of course, but the hall serves a valuable purpose, commemorating the birth of the king, glorifying his mother and making her part of his overall myth, and, naturally, tying the royal family together with the great gods of Thebes. This birthing hall is a secluded but essential component of the temple, and it probably played a vital role in the overall cult of kingship which was practiced in this space. So, there are the inner sanctuaries, a hall of columns, the hall of the bark shrines, the birthing room, and then the grand courtyard. Just beyond the bark shrines, the building opened out into another forest of columns, but this one led to a wide square space lined with double rows of pillars. This courtyard is open air, letting in the sunlight, and it is probably meant as a gathering space for honoured officials. Remember, only a select few could enter the inner sanctuaries of the temple, and 99% of the population had to stay out of the building entirely. For the privileged elites, valued for their service in government and loyalty, the king might permit them to gather in this courtyard on special occasions. Here, within the grand spaces of Luxor Temple, the rich and powerful could rub elbows and gain special access to the rites of Amun. When the sun shone down into the courtyard, the king might bring the god's statue forth from its sanctuary. Life-giving rays would energize the image, or toot, of Amun, which, quite possibly, had a face made to resemble that of the king. As Amunhotep promoted himself into divine company, his royal statue-makers began to apply the king's features to the various male gods. Quite possibly, the golden statue of Amun, the Hidden One, which resided at Luxor Temple, now had the king's own face. So, just as the king described himself as a Tut-Imen-Ra, or image of Amun-Ra, so the actual statue may have worn the king's own features. That's a hypothesis only, but I wouldn't be surprised. The rays of the sun might shine down on the statue, making it gleam in the light. This dazzling image, or Tut-Chehen, would be re-energized by the solar rays, renewing its power and helping it to maintain its magic. Under the watchful gaze of the king, his priests and his honoured officials, Amun would bathe in the light of the sun disk and his power would be restored. Then the shrine was closed once more and the bark returned to the inner halls of the temple. Beyond the grand courtyard, the temple ended with a simple gateway or pylon. At the time of Amunhotep III, Luxor Temple was about half of its current length. But it was still incredibly impressive, a monumental achievement that had turned a previously minor set of shrines into the new centre for worshipping the pharaoh himself. From now on, the cult of the royal Ka, or spirit, would flourish at Luxor Temple, and generations of kings to come would invigorate their own power by making contributions to the structure, and embellishing its gleaming halls. So those are some forgotten monuments, quote-unquote, of Amunhotep III. Things that don't get as much attention as the Colossi of Memnon or Karnak, or the King's Hidden Tomb near the Valley of the Kings. I just wanted to do a quick flyby for those who are interested. 
On the next episode, we return to the narrative and begin the last couple of years of Amunhotep's life. There is one more said festival, a couple more diplomatic situations, and of course, the construction of the royal tomb in the hidden valleys west of Thebes. Join me soon for episode 107, coming soon. Oh, and stick around for the epilogue where I explain how Ptah, Lord of Memphis, inadvertently changed the course of history as we know it. See you in a moment. Let us return to Memphis, the old city of Men-Nefer. Memphis is one of the great lost sites in Egyptology. The ancient town is covered by the modern settlement of Mitrahina. Only a few spaces exist where archaeology is possible. From those feeble grounds, Egyptologists have to extract as much as possible from a very limited site. The modern archaeological zone focuses on the temple of Ptah, the creator and lord of craftsmen. Once upon a time, this temple was probably one of the most impressive in Egypt, easily a rival to Hermopolis or Luxor Temple, possibly even the equal of Karnak, or at least 18th Dynasty Karnak. Unfortunately, centuries of intense occupation and building in the region around Cairo have stripped the temple of all its structures. Only foundations and a few traces here and there remain. But that doesn't diminish the site's importance in the least. You see, the Temple of Ptah provides one of those quirks of history that link our modern world inextricably with the past. Let me explain. Back in the day, Memphis had been called Eneb Hedge, the White Wall. A bit later, it became known as Mennefer, Enduring Beauty or Beautiful Foundation. Those names served the city in the early dynastic, old, and middle kingdoms, between 3000 and 1500 BCE, approximately. They were good names, evocative names, but by 1365, things had changed slightly in the community. In the later 18th dynasty, around the time of Amunhotep III, the city of Memphis seems to have been more commonly referred to as Hutkapitar, Hutkapita, House of Ptah's Ka, or Spirit, was the name of the main temple, Ptah's temple. It was also the name by which locals and foreigners referred to the city of Memphis. Surprisingly, this name became even more popular overseas, and that had interesting ramifications. Far away on the island of Crete, a small tablet makes reference to an Egyptian man living in the region. The man was a shepherd leading a flock of 80 sheep near a town called Surimo, or Sirimos, located somewhere on the island. The tablet is written in the Mycenaean language, which was dominating Crete at the time, and it is roughly contemporaneous with the age of Amunhotep III, give or take a hundred years. What's interesting is this local shepherd's name. The Egyptian shepherd living on Crete is referred to as Akupitio, this might be his real name, or a nickname given to the foreigner by local Cretans. What's important is that the name Akupitio is a direct adaptation of the name for Memphis, Hut Ka Pita. 
it appears that this Egyptian was known to the locals simply as the Memphite, or the guy from Memphis. Again, this might be his actual name, we're not sure, but from another text not too far away, we get a similar pattern emerging. East of Crete, on the shores of Syria, the city of Ugarit was one of Egypt's bastions in the Near East. A trading city par excellence, Ugarit was nominally under Egyptian authority, but its leaders had contacts and connections with all of the nearby empires. Most importantly, some of the surviving texts from Ugarit help flesh out our understanding of Memphis and of Egypt. A text found at Ugarit makes reference to the place called Hikupita. This is the Syrian version of Hutkapita, and it shows up in diplomatic letters as well. The term Hikupita is apparently used interchangeably with the city of Memphis and with Egypt itself, to the point that the two become indistinguishable in the eyes of foreign peoples. So it seems as though foreigners were quite comfortable referring to Egypt along the same lines as they referred to Memphis. The reason is most likely that diplomats or traders who visited Egypt probably came to Memphis as their main destination, so to them, the largest city of Egypt was effectively Egypt itself. Certainly, it was the most important part of Egypt as far as their priorities were concerned. Chances are that multiple cultures referred to Memphis and Egypt in this manner, but for people who speak English, the Cretan or Greek use is definitely the most notable. As I mentioned, hut capita became akupitio, and that is incredibly important because it eventually evolved into the term Egyptios, and then into Egypt. So hut capita was translated to akupitio, then Egyptios, and then Egypt. And that, dear listener, is how we get the word. The history of language is complex, remarkable, and frequently ironically amusing. Thanks to some foreign misrepresentations, a single temple came to be the designation of a whole city, and then a whole country. Unwittingly, the great sanctuary of Ptah gave Egypt its modern western name. I think the god would be ecstatic with that. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.